0: To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Welcome to the Balance of Power Roundtable, broadcast on WKXL and available wherever you get your podcasts. I am Matt Robeson, and I'm joined, as always, by Paul Hodes, who is a former two-term U.S. congressman from New Hampshire, a Democrat, and our conservative commentator, analyst, and consultant, Alicia Preston. Panel, right before the weekend, there was sort of a Friday bomb from our favorite, everyone's favorite West Virginia Senator Joe Manchin, who announced that he would not support any reconciliation package. Remember, we've been talking about this for a year. This is the way that the Senate can can set a budget and kind of squeeze things past the filibuster. He wouldn't support any reconciliation package that includes new tax increases targeting wealthy Americans, or spending on climate change. What that leaves is potentially a very, very narrow bill that would address lowering prescription drug costs for seniors and subsidies to help keep health insurance costs down for millions of Americans for the next two years. The New York Times described it as a crushing blow to President Joe Biden's domestic agenda, effectively ruling out action on anything beyond prescription drug pricing and healthcare subsidies. Paul, I'm going to turn to you first, because I know that global warming is an extremely important issue for you personally. And for many Democrats in sort of the, the broader Democratic base, they see this as an existential issue and an absolute number one priority. What do you make of the impact of this announcement? Big deal, little deal, no deal
1: say it ain't so joe say it ain't so it makes me so sad um it makes me so angry um impact uh huge Um, the 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 climate agenda is is really critical i mean you know climate global warming are 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 challenging issues because of the competing interests of big business industry uh and our habits um, and the fact that it's uh, often imperceptible uh, to to in our daily lives, except, of course, when we get these crazy weather events and farmers report the big droughts and people are dying from heat waves and, the you know, you can watch the polar ice caps melting and you wonder, what's the earth going to be like in 20 years if we don't do something or 50 years if we don't do something? And really, that's so far in the future. Why should anyone care? And then on the other hand, you've got Joe Manchin, who single handedly is, um, I guess, bringing back what um, former New Hampshire Governor John Sununu did in the 80s. Trying, He's trying to take um, global warming um, uh to the back bench. And um, frankly, it is an existential issue, not just for Americans, but for the planet. Uh, I know it's hard to wrap our brains around it, but it's happening and we need to do something about it. Everybody agrees, except apparently Joe Manchin. All of a sudden, he's had the come to Jesus moment about, gee, we really shouldn't spend money on dealing with global warming. Um, Forget that I'm Uh, from a coal state forget that I get a huge amount of money from fossil fuel people Um, it's it's a tragedy it's a shame Uh, it is a big deal Um, and I'm disgusted with Joe Manchin Alicia
2: Uh, go Joe look the uh, a few things let's back up the idea that uh, this this legislation on climate change would have any global impact on climate change is just ridiculous. It's feel good uh, campaign tactics to say we're doing something. The fact of the matter is this is a global issue, and I believe it's an issue. I'm a pro-environment Republican. I'm not a denier. But the idea that this existential threat will be solved by this piece of legislation is ridiculous. It, it's it's factual. You guys want to believe the science? Believe the science. It is ridiculous to presume this piece of legislation will have even an iota of an effect on the global problem of climate change. What Joe Manchin's doing is listening to the American public. And what I mean by that is we don't want you to spend money, our money, on anything right now. And why is that? Because we've got, we are an economic crisis in this country. I saw a report on the news this morning, and it was a left-bent news station, and they're championing that consumer sales are up one percent. And that beat expectations because expectations were eight-tenths of a percent, like that's even a margin to worry about, but then noted it's not adjusted for inflation, which is at 9.1%. What that means is consumer sales are up only 1%, unadjusted for the inflation up 9%, which means consumer sales are down. People are not buying. People are not buying because we are broke. In a couple months, we have to turn our heat on. And a lot of people, a lot of families can't afford to buy that propane to fill their fuel tanks, can't afford to buy that lump sum. Their oil companies are not locking in prices for anybody. And so Joe Manchin comes out and does what the American people want, that's to stop spending any money unless you can figure out how to get it back in my pocket, because I'm trying to feed my darn family.
1: Can I just um, comment for a moment that um, I appreciate Alicia? Uh, that your concern is for American families. And we all appreciate that we're in a period of high inflation. Uh, nobody, nobody likes it. Um, it the, the reasons are complex and it's making, um, it's making it harder for people to buy things. And um, we live in a society which um, uh, is designed at the moment to uh, wreck humanity with overconsumption, overproduction of consumer goods that um, uh, are not necessary, but desirable. So I'll, I'll skip over the broader implications of what we do about a, a failed uh, consumer society in terms of a sustainable planet. But head in the sand uh, thinking about the short-term implications of what we need to do um, uh, really won't get us anywhere. We have a long-term existential problem. The United States is one of the biggest emitters of uh, uh, the causes of global warming. Uh, We are the world's biggest economy. Uh, Turning our economy, our our national effort, and our national will towards dealing with global warming is critical uh, in terms of leading the world on what needs to be done. So head in the sand short-term thinking about it. Nobody claims that, that dealing with global warming on a national basis here in the United States is going to solve all the problems. But it's a really important step. And it's really important to the world that we show leadership on it. The fact that one senator is blocking the imperatives that would speed our transition from fossil fuel is really anathema um, to um, a lot of people, including certainly Democrats, but right-thinking people who care about their kids' future. Now, I know you you have a child, and you care about her future. Um, I can't imagine why anybody would not support measures, smart measures, timely measures, to be, to have government policy begin to turn us towards um, moving away from fossil fuels, which we need to do. Um, the, the climate package is an important part of that. Um, so I, 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 I'm, I'm sorry, but I object to your short term thinking.
2: I'd like to square the circle. Oh, well, no, you respond. Go ahead, Just real quick, I'd like to point out that it's not one senator making the majority decision. It is 51 senators, all of whom are duly elected. And just because they've got an R next to their name does not mean that they have any less authority or right to take that vote in Congress. And I'm so tired of hearing Manchin as the decider. 51 senators are making this decision.
1: Yeah, right. And, fi- and 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 that's right. And and how many of them have an R in front of their name? And why is it that the Republican Party is standing in the way of dealing with global warming? Because just a question. We'll just hang. We'll just I'll leave answer it. Hanging it. Out you
2: there. don't have to leave it hanging. I'll answer it. You ask, because apparently the 51 senators understand the American people are trying to feed their family and heat their homes before they worry about what's happening. in a, a globe away 100 years from now. And yeah, I care about the environment, but I care more about feeding my family today.
0: And I think what what squares the circle on this to some degree is it, it, it's not, I mean, Paul, everything you're saying is, of course, right in a long-term sense. Alicia, I don't want to put words in your mouth, but I think what I hear you saying is there's a political reality here, and I, I'm not going to try to get into the heads of the Republican senators who are clearly doing a political, you know, they're, they're doing their own politics when it comes to global warming. But I think what Joe Manchin is doing here is probably the, the politically right thing to do. He is being responsive to, he's reading the room here, people. And the fact of the matter is, I I don't think that on the margin with a long-term truly global problem I think what he's saying is, he cares about his children and his grandchildren too. But whether or not we spend $300 billion over the next 10 years in this reconciliation package is not going to meaningfully change our trajectory on the the warming of the planet. Paul, even as you said, it would kind of move us generally in the right direction. Let's not forget that we passed the bipartisan infrastructure bill, which has not insubstantial levels of funding for electric vehicles and clean energy development and other things that generally move us in the right direction. Let's not forget that notwithstanding the Supreme Court decision, Biden's EPA has been overturning Trump era rules that have a lot to do, that are fundamental to the fight against global warming. This bill, this reconciliation bill is not the be-all end-all. And I think my own view is that there's a fair amount of catastrophizing going on from the left about this is the thing we have to do. Otherwise, we lose the fight against global warming. But I think we have to maintain as a party, a big picture view here. I mean, if, if if keeping an eye on global warming is all about, let's look at the big picture. Well, let's look at the big picture truly here. President Biden has taken an all-of-government approach on global warming. He's passed a number of executive actions. He's directed agencies to make this an absolute top priority. Federal agencies are doing so. He's initiated a number of rulemakings and rolling back of Trump-era rules that are having significant impact. And we have to bear in mind that, to some degree, it's the long-term picture that—that that is the long-term war that we have to fight here. We do ourselves no favors. Falling on our swords for we have to pass this one reconciliation bill with this particular tranche of funding, or it's all over. What about the larger enterprise of, you know what, Democrats have other victories that we have to win? Because Paul, as you say, the Republicans, for some crazy reason, are lock stock and smoking barrel against anything that would prevent global catastrophe from global warming. Don't understand it. That's a truly short-sighted and short-term view, but there are other battles to wage. I actually think Joe Manchin may be doing Democrats a big favor here by trying to keep this bill, this reconciliation bill, to something narrow that we can talk about and that voters can actually understand. If you say, this bill is just about healthcare costs. This is just about, we're going to lower your healthcare costs. We're going to make your insulin more affordable because by the way, prices for everything are up. You've got to be able to pay your bills. That's actually something we can win with. And it preserves our ability to win the larger war on global warming. So unpopular in the party. Sure. But I'm actually with Joe Manchin on this one.
2: Good strategy. No, sincerely, good strategy. If you want to just take it politically, that is a smart strategy. I don't. I personally, look, we, we've got 2022 coming up. Republicans are going to do well. You know, I, I, this far out though, I don't think it is a done deal that there's going to be this sweeping red wave. Um, and I think you know, district by district, things are difficult, and it's going to be how each side handles everything going on right now. And yeah, I mean, I personally like what Joe Manchin did, but politically, it's also smart for him. And it would be smart for the Democratic Party to take the lead. Don't do that, though, because I want you guys to lose.
0: Well, now I'm questioning myself because Alicia is <laughs> agreeing with my strategy and I sense a trap. <laughs> I feel like Admiral Akbar is yelling, it's a trap, it's a trap. OK, <laughs> let's let's move on here. Um, I want to I want to do a little bit of a retrospective. Last week we saw the latest, and we're reaching the tail end of the public series of January 6th hearings. There were more revelations. We, we saw testimony linking the proud boys and the oath keepers and the oath boys and the proud keepers. And I don't know. There's a right-wing constellation of crazies out there who are armed to the teeth, who are showing up on January 6th with bombs, with weapons, planning to essentially wage an insurrection. There were back channel communications going on. There's there was this whole miasma of of terrible stuff happening. And there was this crazy meeting at the White House on December 18th, 2020, where apparently for six hours with Donald Trump in the Oval Office, they're all shouting about this. And Donald Trump was this close to appointing the craziest person on earth, Sidney Powell, to be a special counsel and have the power essentially to seize voting machines. There was like next level crazy going on. Paul, you want to interject something in my recitation here?
1: He did appoint Sidney Powell. He said, okay, you're appointed. Oh, and 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 now I and I'm giving you access to classified information. But it got too. clawed
0: back. It got, I mean, like the whole the whole scheme it of, only, like you're it, gonna it, be
1: it, well, he appointed her, but it it got clawed back in the sense that his his White House counsel said, Nobody's gonna look, nobody's gonna listen to this. You can't you can't do that. But anyway, yes. Well, the White House counsel then
0: also did go on to say. We're all going to be charged with every crime under the book if if, if we get involved in January 6th, which they all did. Which and they clearly, all did. Well, that leads to my question. That leads to my question. Paul, I want to actually go to you first. But once again, we're going to turn to you, not just for your political expertise as a former member of Congress, but also you're a former assistant attorney general. You're a former prosecutor. You have gone after white collar crimes. You, you you can explain all this. To me. We as we did a curtain riser a, a little over a month ago on this public hearing series asking what will, what will make it successful? Is this worth doing? Is this a good idea? Well, as we reach the tail end and we can do a whole retrospective when it's all absolutely wrapped up, but has this been worthwhile? Have we gotten, have we gotten something valuable out of having all these public hearings?
1: Uh, First of all, the hearings were brilliantly done. Um, They weren't boring. They were, they presented riveting testimony, riveting evidence, um, the committee understood that they didn't don't have to follow the rules of evidence um, and did a great job testifying in terms of the committee members. Uh, it was well produced and it made for good television, which in this day and age, despite Alicia's concerns about the Hollywood production, it was really well done. They chose important pieces of evidence. They uh, sifted through, I mean, just mounds and mounds of video depositions and other evidence to make the presentation. Um, They've connected dots in a very important way. This is a very, very important uh, set of hearings for the American people uh, and for history to understand the depths of the depravity um, of Donald Trump and his henchmen, um, really depraved indifference corrupt intent, a clear um, ignorance, a willful ignorance of uh, legality, um, a clear motivation. Um, and they've connected dots and, and presented some really compelling uh, images for the American people. For, I And mean, just for example, at the last hearing, the former uh, oath keeper who talked about the clear and present danger we're facing now as a nation, was compelling. Um, um, Cassidy Hutchinson, compelling. Um, so I think it was an important hearing. I will say this about where what we're left with from a legal from a legal standpoint. It's a very different standard of proof to prove uh, criminality beyond a reasonable doubt. And if I were in the DOJ, I would be um, uh, looking at below hanging fruit here. Um, for example, if I wanted to prosecute Donald Trump, um, there is, I think, good um, uh, uh, a, a sound case potentially for incitement to insurrection. Um, there may be a sound case for witness tampering, given the revelations that um, Congresswoman Cheney um, gave us. It's going to be harder to prove conspiracy, um, and that's the big fish, but we are a lot closer than we were to understanding the grounds for these cases.
0: That's really interesting. I mean, I, I and I just want to I just want to kind of bookmark that particular piece of analysis because we've talked about this a lot on the show, and we've had Barbara. We've we've kind of had a who's who of legal analysts come through the Beyond Politics show. Recently, we had Barb McQuade, we had Joyce Vance, you know, and and we've had some significant insights from them about. What might turn into criminal prosecutions? What might not? The willful blindness aspect. Now there's this witness tampering aspect. So I just want to commend those shows. Go back if you want to hear that analysis in the Beyond Politics podcast feed. Alicia, I'd like you to weigh in on this. I'd like to turn to you. What's your view? I don't
2: know. Um, You know, I don't know if it has a huge impact right now. Where I think it will have an impact is 25, 30 years down the road in the history books. When we're out of, maybe I'm Pollyanna to think we'll get out of it, but when we're out of this fog of extreme partisanship, where we're out of this area of complete tribalism, um, and I think that day will come, uh, I think the effect on society will be, of of the January 6th hearings and on what happened on January 6th, will affect our country more when we look back at it, and we're still kind of in the middle of it because these hearings are going on and because um, the big lie is still going on. And, and the thing that motivated the actors on January 6th is still going on. Um, and, and I think people are still pinned on their sides for the most part. And uh, like, so, uh, you know, I don't know the level of impact. You guys know how I feel about prosecution. I just, I, I think it's bad for the country. Um, and And I still think even though even the New York Times is reporting that Donald Trump's going to run just deciding on when he's going to announce it. I still don't think he's going to. It could be the biggest. I've been saying this for a year and a half. It could be the biggest mistake I've verbally made by saying he's not going to, but I still think he's not. Um, but so the answer is in part, I don't know. And in part, I think it'll have more of effect on the history of America than it will on the present day.
0: That's uh, That's really interesting. <laughs> that's really interesting. You know what? First of all, I want to doubly applaud you. I want to applaud you for having the the chutzpah to go ahead and make a prediction about the Trump not running thing and to own up to the possibility that you may be wrong about that. But hey, too many people in kind of the pundit class, you know, kind of they sort of go with the flow. And then if they if they make a wrong call, they anyway. I, so that's uh, good for you and good for you also. You know, it's funny. I one of uh, one of my professors in grad school who used to be a foreign policy advisor for George H.W. Bush and then was the ambassador to India under George W. Bush of all things. That's cool. Used to say that the hardest thing to do is to say, I don't know, especially when you're asked a question by a president. And in this case, you're being asked a question live on the air or, or somewhat live or we're taped. Okay. It's not live. Live to tape. It's really hard. Yeah. <laughs> Live to tape. That's one of those, that's one of those phrases that shouldn't exist. It's, it's ridiculous. Right? Uh, it's like jumbo shrimp. I mean, it's really hard to say. I don't know. And I'm going to just go ahead and jump on the train that, that, that you just created there, Alicia. I mean, I don't think I know either. I do want to just put a plug back for what I think I said a month and a half ago when we discussed this before the hearing started which was if we are thinking about this purely politically in terms of this is all political theater to go after Donald Trump is going to be a failure and it's not going to work and i agree with you on that and it's going to be self-defeating because it's just it's it's polarizing it's just going to send people back to their corners and that's indeed what we've seen but if we think about it in terms of the criminal aspect The the historic importance of this and the fact that we need to see justice done, then there could be real value here and let the chips fall where they may politically from that. And I agree with Paul. I, I do think that we have gotten significant value out of that. And interestingly, the politics of this have not seemed to be negative for Democrats. There was concern i think among some democratic consultants that this would be bad for campaigns because at a time of high inflation where most americans were thinking mostly about the, the price of gas and food democrats would appear overly focused on donald trump and january 6th that that's what we'd be talking about and we'd seem out of touch But we're now seeing polling coming out showing that over the last month things have actually been moving in the democrats direction while the primary focus has been this January 6th thing, and we're seeing a little bit of movement. The, according to Politico Morning Consult, that polling, the number of Republicans who say Trump lied about the election is up seven percent. And that's significant. If 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 we're beginning to break down the big lie, that is that is significant. So I, I think the to me the answer is they've been valuable, they've been worthwhile. Um, and I, I think I agree with Paul that they've been well done in that they have not tried to put the politics forward. They've tried to put the substance forward. And for the most part, I think that has worked, but I want to jump. Oh, did you want to jump in Alicia?
2: Well, I was just, I was just taking a breath.
0: Oh, (laughs) something that I'd be well advised to do sometimes. (laughs) I'm sure the listeners out there are like, Hey Matt, take a breath
2: so well, listeners, well, we can see each other you can't yeah, see us so we see, see each this other this is the
0: zoom this is the zoom advantage. Yeah. well i want to jump off from that topic and kind of where i was taking it there and sort of the politics of it into a, a closely related discussion which is last week we saw another series of stories kind of jumping off from polls about the future of what you were just saying alicia donald trump who apparently has decided but you know he's just he's just saying when, and Democrats are like, oh please, please soon, please step on the Republicans' midterm message. Oh please. So there's Donald Trump, and there's some interesting polling about that, where it's, it's kind of a Rorschach test for h- how you see his standing in the Republican Party. There was a, again in that Politico Morning Consult poll, it was something like a margin of. 49 to 25 Republican voters preferred Donald Trump as their candidate in 2024 over Ron DeSantis. And so you could read that either way, right? You could say, well, two to one advantage for Trump. That's that's really significant. Almost a clear majority saying, yep, we're, we want to stick with Trump. On the other hand, you could say, well, that's a very clear alternative, gaining strength with not nearly the same public profile and only room to grow That's that's kind of a big deal. On the Democratic side, we had a whole week of Joe Biden saying he's going to run and pushing back against the he's too old story that we covered on last week's show. And a whole bunch of Democrats coming out and saying, I'm not I'm not going to challenge him. You know, J.B. Pritzker and and, you know, back channel talks about Kamala Harris and all, all of that kind of thing. So where are we on the Trump versus Biden within their own party dynamic. Are these both still the likeliest nominees in 2024? Paul, I'd like to turn to you first. Where do you see the dynamics shaking out?
1: Well, first of all, I think that one, going back to our last topic as a bridge, what has been revealed in the the hearings um, and the way things are going may be giving even Donald Trump a bit of pause about his future. So it makes sense for him to say, oh, I'm gonna announce in the fall uh, because I I think he's figuring, well, if I announce in the fall, whether or not I'm really gonna do it or not, then once uh, if prosecutions happen or if investigations happen, I can just call them a democratic witch hunt and that'll rile my base back up. And any support or concern that Republicans have will be—they'll rally around me because I'm being persecuted by the evil Democrat liberal witch hunters. So that's what—that—that's—that's that's where I'm headed. And I may or may not stay in the race, but that's what—that's—that's my—that's my—that's my defense. I'm a candidate for president. You're—you're you're persecuting me. It's all political. Um, I I think that Republicans I, I can't speak for Republicans because I can't understand Republicans at all. Um, I confess I, I, I have I'm I'm I have the inability to understand what has happened to the grand old party, except some kind of viral infection of insanity. Um, but given given that, I think Trump is probably still popular with the rank and file. Um, But it is likely the um, uh, uh, professionals in the party who see that Trump could very well have a serious negative effect on the midterms if he does announce, given what we've seen in the hearings. Um, People are perhaps getting tired of the big lie. And while it may not be the base of the Republicans, it may be independents. Um, who have begun to shift significantly away from Trump. Uh, and there they, doesn't have to be a really big shift uh, in order to affect um, what the Republicans are hoping is a great outcome in the midterms. I think that um, uh, the Biden um, uh, White House is in damage control within their own party. They are pushing back hard. Uh, I think that um, there are many people in the Biden White House who have been working the phones relentlessly to make the case for their boss. Um, whether or not he does he does or does not run, um, it is incredibly counterproductive for Democrats to be. Um, to, to, to be it, it's a circular firing squad that uh, for Democrats to um, to whine about uh, Joe Biden.
0: Alicia, you said something really interesting a moment ago, which is you don't think things are heading toward a red wave here in 2022. So I I just
2: I'd like. Well, not to the extent all the pundits in the world.
0: Right. Not necessarily. You're saying that's not a lock. You're saying that's not a lock. So. I mean, I kind of want to tie these two things together. I mean, I want you to be able to respond on sort of the Trump standing within his own party, Biden standing within his own party dynamic of this. But, you know, how how does that? Well, okay, I'll tell you what. Let me parking lot the the 2022 thing. Let me let you get to the to the presidential dynamics first and then let's do midterms. Anything you wanted to
2: bring in on that? Just to expand the possibility of me being completely wrong about absolutely everything, Mm. I not only don't think Donald Trump's going to run, I don't think Joe Biden is either. I do not think either one is going to be on the ballot in 2024. And I think to answer the primary question, if they do run, they will both be their party nominees. Uh, I just don't see that scenario happening. And I think we got to start looking at who else is in the field. But if I can take a 30 second moment of personal privilege here. We just learned very recently that Ivana Trump, the very first wife of Donald Trump, uh, died unexpectedly. Now, if you were a girl being raised in the 80s, like I was, and a girly girl, like I was, we all looked at Ivana Trump we couldn't wait to see her in our magazines and TV and see what she was wearing. And we modeled our hair and makeup after her when we were 13. And you wanted to grow up and be Ivana Trump, not because you wanted to be married to Donald. You just wanted her fashion and her style and her exuberance. She literally was an icon for those of us who were tweens and teens in the eighties. And uh, it's always sad when someone passes, but someone like her really, you know, it it, it made me sad. It's the end of an era.
0: Well said. And um, I, I, you know, I was I grew up in New York City during that time frame. And look, you could not. The New York Post, when they weren't when they weren't leading with headlines, classics like headless body found in topless bar. It was usually about the Trumps. That was an all timer. But but it was usually about the Trumps. Ivana was all over it. And I have to admit, she was kind of she was part of my childhood. And and
1: and because and because uh, the Donald is such a classy guy, he used her passing as an opportunity for fundraising, uh, without um, uh, really mourning her in any way. What a class act!
2: Well, I didn't see that That's all.
0: Here is me not being surprised. All right, let's let's do the connection that I was kind of teasing a moment ago. I mean, I think what I want to get at here is where are we in the political environment because it seems it seems like things are very fluid right now and, I mean Alicia right before we got on the air you you sent me a text in which you said everything is going on right now and yet nothing is going on there's like <laughs> a lot of churn and it's very very hard to get a handle on what all of it means and I'll give you I'll give you an example um, and it's it's a really tough one I have been thinking, and I have argued on this show, that the Dobbs decision and and the abortion issue was not fundamentally going to change the dynamics of the midterm election. And that it is possible that it would change some minds, especially among suburban women. But for the most part, what it's going to do is mobilize certain segments of the base of the Democratic Party, certain segments of the base of the Republican Party that would mostly be a wash. And Republicans have shown over and over, over the years, that they're very good at muddying the waters and putting forward messaging that, that lessens the political impact of an issue like this. And I've tended to agree with with what you've said on this show, Alicia, which is that front and center in people's minds is going to be prices, inflation, high costs, and generally the economy. And that is not a good story. You put that together with the the general midterm dynamics, bad news for Democrats. But last week, I began to wonder if maybe that wasn't right. Because we had this case of the 10-year-old girl who was a rape victim in Ohio who could not get an abortion because she was past the six-week ban in Ohio, had to travel to Indiana to get that critically needed medical care. And the right-wing media began to question whether this case even existed. Jim Jordan, that absolute peach of a human being, tweeted that it was a lie. And then, of course, media outlets discovered that the perpetrator of the crime had been found and charged. And so it is a real story. It is true. And what I began to wonder is, As horrifying as I find this story, aren't we likely to see more tragedies in the coming months? And don't we have a number of prominent Republican leaders on camera, on the record, right now, in real time, saying that they believe that rape victims, including this child, should be forced to carry to term? And we've seen what happens when people with extreme views on issues like this that are highly emotional. And believe me, I find this to be highly emotional when people like that are on the ballot. We saw this with Todd Akin in 2012. He was the one who talked about legitimate rape. And so This is a very, very heavy topic to bring into what's otherwise, I think, a rather we try to make this a very upbeat conversation on this show. But I'm beginning to wonder, I'm seriously beginning to wonder if maybe this is an issue and and the other constellation of issues that that basically point to aren't these folks a little extreme is going to be a major factor in the midterms. I, I guess I'll pause because I just went on a long soliloquy there. I'm sorry for sort of ranting about that, but I, I feel like that topic deserves some treatment here. And, you know, Alicia, I, I, what do you make of this? I mean, I, I, you, I think you and I have been on the same page that we did not see abortion and the Dobbs decision as a major factor politically in the midterms. But like I said, I'm beginning to wonder if I'm wrong. Are you beginning to think about this different?
2: No, not yet. Um, you know, a few months is a really long time. And I mean that in two ways. One, that's a long time for more stories like this to come out. And two, that's a long time for people to forget about this story. Um, I think if you vote on the issue of abortion, whether it's pro-choice or pro-life, if you vote on the issue of abortion, you already vote Democrat or Republican. I just don't see that being a place where most people will change in any capacity. It's, it's, it's a one-issue thing, and if you're already voting based on that, you're already voting for red or blue. Look, you know, my concern about this, and, and I want to preface this, I've said it before on the show, but so people understand where I'm coming from, I am pro-life. However, I think it is tragic, horrible, unacceptable that a government prevents a 10 year old rape victim from having to carry a baby the idea that there is no exception after six weeks six weeks is really new it's like you know my mom didn't know she was pregnant with me till she was five months six weeks is very new and we're talking a rape victim of any age but particularly here a 10 year old child You need to have, and again, I'm speaking as a pro-life woman, you need to have exceptions. It is inhumane to force a 10 year old girl to have to carry a rapist's child. It's inhumane. And now Fortunately, she was able to go over a state line and get it taken care of. But this little girl, you know, I don't want her used as a pawn, and for many reasons, obviously because of the trauma she went through. She was raped twice by this 27-year-old man. But this is a little girl whose mother is defending the rapist. Um, my daughter's just fine. He didn't do anything wrong. This little girl is, is being brought up in tragedy and in horror, and what we should do is not use her as a political pawn, and we should use her as a message to change and leave her alone and hope she has a better life moving forward.
0: Paul, I uh, will, uh, you know, this is obviously, this is so hard because I'm, I'm sort of asking about the politics of something where- Okay. I so- think we all agree, we don't want this,
1: mm-hmm.
0: we don't want this case to be a political issue. We certainly okay. don't want this child to be a political pawn.
1: So so look, here's what here here's what what's inhumane is what's happened around the country about the intrusion of government into a woman's right to choose. That's inhumane. What's inhumane is taking away um, the a woman's freedom to control her own body. That's inhumane. Um, this is the logical extension, um, Alicia, of uh, your pro-life stance um, as writ by the Republican Supreme Court um, and the uh, conservatives around the country who have made this their battle cry. So this is a logical extension inhumane and outrageous, of course. But this is just one example of the inhumane and outrageous results of uh, of what's going on around the country around abortion. Um, Is it going to be uh, decisive in the midterms? Well, Democrats have a history of not showing up in the midterms and uh, the Dobbs decision and this the inhumanity that we're seeing in these outrageous results uh, may turn out Democratic women and independent women who are going to say enough is enough. Um, of this inhumanity and depravity. Uh, that's a word I've used twice, once for Trump and once for this. Um, so it may have uh, some effect in terms of turnout uh, in the midterms. Ultimately, um, as Alicia has said often on this program, all she cares about is um, the price of bread and milk. And it may be... And that, eggs. Yeah, yeah. okay, I'm sorry. I, 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 I stand corrected. Milk... Bread and eggs. The um, egg the, council creeps the, have gotten to the, YouTube, the huh? essential <laughs> ingredients of French toast. So, 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 given given that French toast is all that's important to Americans, they don't care about climate change. They don't care about abortion. They don't care about anything. All they care about is French toast. But um, we'll see in the midterms uh, just just what the result is. I will note. That in addition to French toast, you've also cited the price of gas, which is coming on its way down. And if inflation is under control, who knows what we'll see in the midterms?
2: Well, I I would just like to. Oh, go ahead, please. Real quick, I would just like to advise all Democrats running for office to be as condescending as Paul Hodes just was to the plight of the American family who can't afford to feed their children. So you guys keep doing that and then I'll have to change my stance about whether a red wave is going to come or not.
1: Luckily, wow, I'm so not much- running. Luckily, I'm not running for office. So I can be condescending with you and your French toast analysis without prejudice to my chances for office.
0: Yeah, you know what? That is true. Paul Hodes, zero percent chance of getting elected to anything this year. I, I I let's close out. We we gotta go in just a minute. I will say a lot more to talk about here on this topic. And we will, I'm sure, in our next show and in an upcoming shows. But this is, I just want to commend to our listeners. We did a great conversation in Beyond Politics with Mark Bergman last week. We talked a lot more about this, this war, this messaging war between the parties about which one's more extreme and which one's on your side on kitchen table issues. So listen to that. We'll talk more about this topic next time on Balancing